You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. So uh, if you guys don't know me, I'm, I'm Steve. I'm one of the elders here. And uh, every couple of months, I get the chance to, to teach from up here, speak from up here. Um, I, was, I was talking to Matt about this the other day, and it's always really interesting, like through the sermon prep process to like, at some point in reading God's word, you just get the thing, the message that, that God has for us. And, and from then on, it's, it's just a matter of connecting the dots in a public speaking sense to make sure it makes sense and everything. Um, but really just like full confidence in the word that God has for us today. And if I could just like email this to you all, then I could go sit down and we could all read in silence. That would be so much easier, but it's not what we do. So, um, but we're in the second week of uh, our Emmanuel series. So again, Emmanuel meaning God with us. And, you know, last week Matt walked us through um, through uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and kind of what, what that Emmanuel God with us meant uh, for them. And this morning uh, we're going to see it through kind of Mary and Joseph's eyes. Uh, before we do that, I wanted to kind of give maybe just like a little bit of a, a preamble to this series in general. Um, a lot of times, you know, if, if you've grown up in Christian culture, a lot of times you do like these character studies of, of people, and char- there's nothing wrong with character studies, but there is a, a, uh, a pitfall that you could do. You could look at these characters and think, oh, we need to emulate them, that they're the real heroes of the story or, you know, whatever that is. It turns the focus from God to people, and that's absolutely, of course, not what we want to do, and so, you know, really this morning, all we're doing through Mary and Joseph is just kind of putting ourselves, it's like forced perspective, standing in their shoes as these things happened, seeing it through their eyes and just seeing what God has to teach us um, through that. And also, you know, to look at them and see, okay, God uses flawed people. There's no perfect people in the Bible except for one. And so that's, you know, that's, that's kind of the position that we have uh, uh, going in. So uh, with that, I'd like to pray one more time just to kind of, more than anything, even just like slow myself down and, and calm the nerves. And, and, um, and if you'd pray with me, I'd appreciate it. So. Heavenly Father, we just thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you for uh, the, the season that we're in um, and even just a little bit of snow that started to form this morning. And, and uh, I know for my, me and my family this last weekend, starting kind of the, the Christmassy process, but really just, Lord, we pray for um, that all of this would be, be turned to, to you and, and to the coming of, of you in Christ and knowing that um, here we are, Lord, just in this season, but really it's a, it's a year-round thing of just the arrival of Christ and what that means for us and what God with us uh, really means to each of us individually. So I pray that you'd be with um, us this morning and just, just to hear your words and to, um, to meditate on them. So in your name we pray, amen. So to pick up where Matt left off last week, we're in Luke chapter 1, uh, and in the historical setting, you know, we're in first century Israel. You know, it had been several generations, almost 400 years, since the last of the prophets in Malachi had actually spoken to God's people. And this time of period, this 400 years, they, sometimes it's called the intertestamental period, sometimes it's called the silent years. Silent years is a little bit of a misnomer because it implies that, like, nothing was happening. In fact, a lot of stuff was happening. There was wars and revolts and uh, all kinds of crazy things going on, not to mention you know, 400 years of religious establishment. People were studying God's word and they were building these religious systems around, you know, what God had said previously around his promises and around all the things that, that he had already done. But in those 400 years, they hadn't heard from a prophet um, or any kind of thing, major significant, you know, earth-shifting 
uh, thing that had happened you know, previously. So with those 400 years came a little bit of indifference. Maybe indifference is the wrong word, but you know, there's, there were a set of faithful people who were sitting around waiting for God to move again. But you know, like, like what happened, you kind of get lulled into, you know, it's been generations, it's been 400 years, like, is God even, is God even working anymore? Um, but there were, as Matt pointed out last week, there were a remnant of people who were still waiting on God to move. So Elizabeth and Zechariah were, were two of those people. Um, so, the, you know, the faithful people of God in those days were eagerly awaiting for God to fulfill his promises, the promises that he made to Abraham, uh, that all the people of the world would be blessed through Abraham, and also the promise that he had made to David, that through David's lineage, you know, the world will be blessed as well, and a kingdom would be established that would live forever. So with this as a backdrop, let's jump into the word. Uh, in our passage today, we're going to start in uh, Luke 1, verse 26, and we'll, um, we'll end up skipping a small section that Matt covered last week about Elizabeth and Zechariah, and then back to, to the birth of Christ in chapter 2. So with that, verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was set, uh, sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So I'll pause there for a second. So again, the same messenger that had visited Zechariah, angel Gabriel, six months later had appeared to Mary um, and in, in Luke, we're given almost no background of who Mary and Joseph are. I mean, they give us literally four things. She's a virgin. They're betrothed to be married. Joseph is a descendant of King David, and her name is Mary. <laughs> Those are literally the, the four pieces of information that were given. So if this was about emulating people, pretty hard place to start. You know, you're not, not a whole lot of information there. Um, so Luke is only giving us that essential information, but obviously this is significant information that we'll talk about, you know, later. But also Mary's, Mary's uh, response to this greeting is, is pretty interesting. You know, what does it say? It says she's greatly troubled at these words, trying to discern what this might be. It's kind of interesting. It's not, it doesn't say that she's crumpling from fear like most people do when they see an angel, although she may have also done that. It doesn't say that, though. It says that she's troubled by his greeting, trying to discern what he might mean by this. So again, like, let's look at what he says. He says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Seems like a pretty standard thing for an angel to say to someone, you know, if, I don't know, angel, angel hasn't talked to me directly, but, you know, it doesn't seem that odd, but this is our first indication that Mary knew her scriptures well. She knew the Old Testament well, and for anyone who had these stories memorized by heart in that language, of course, would, this would bring to mind um, when God spoke to people in the past before some history-shifting task. So a couple of examples, Moses at the burning bush, bush. In Exodus 3.12, Moses asks, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And what does God say in response? I will be with you. Same words. Almost countless times in Joshua before battles, before they were sent to take over some city or whatever, um, God uses the same words, but specifically in Joshua 1.5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then the last example is Gideon uh, in the book of Judges. Uh, so an angel comes to Gideon before he's sent to liberate his people, and he says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Very cool. 
<laughs> yeah, but that's pretty intimidating, right? Okay, so now put yourself in Mary's shoes. He comes to her and he says, the Lord is with you. And immediately she gets this imagery of like, okay, wow, okay, Moses, Gideon, Joshua, all these battles, all these things. And I'm sure, you know, being a, a Maybe if she was like not talking to an angel, being a little bit snarky or whatever, she might have a little bit of a comeback and be like, yeah, I left my battle axe in my other jacket. You know, I'm not, I'm not ready for this. But in any case, the angel senses her trepidation and continues. The angel says to her in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him... Give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So this is incredible. These are line by line. These are the fulfillment of God's promises. So in Genesis 12:3, from Abraham, it says, And to you and your families, through you and your families, the earth shall be called blessed. So this is a, a, fulfill, a direct fulfillment, quoting from the angel. This will come true. Also in, uh, to David in 2 Samuel 7.16, And to your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me, your throne shall be established forever. So this is crazy. In, two, in one sentence from the angel, two, two of God's promises are fulfilled through this, through this child. Um, but she misses it initially. Go to verse 34. Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? She's still back on, you said pregnant? Is that what you said? <laughs> She's, she kind of, she missed that, you know, the, the first part. The angel answered her, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, now she gets it, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departs from her. So she gets it now. But she also uh, is hearing the angel tell her about her relative Elizabeth, you know, probably for the first time. And just to step back from the story from last week of Elizabeth and Zechariah, I mean, there in that story, there were these incredible parallels um, with, with Abraham and Sarah. I remember this, this couple in their old age, they're barren, they can't have a son, and, you know, through all these different parallels that happen, you know, the, their son Isaac is born, which is the, fulfill, the beginning of a fulfillment of a promise. And so it's kind of, it's the scripture's way of tipping us of like, hey, something that was as significant as Abraham and Sarah is now happening again through Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, and so it's just that, that huge, there's all these parallels that are being formed. And I think the author of, uh, of Luke, um, he uses these huge contrasts to kind of tip us to what God is doing in this way. And so in any case, when Angel tells Mary about her relative being pregnant, this is likely the first she's heard about it because they live almost 100 miles apart. I mean, kind of the far north of the country and the far south of the country. So immediately, um, uh, Mary leaves to, to be with Elizabeth. So in verse 39, it says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the, uh, the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this been granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. 
And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And again, this is kind of a juxtaposition between these two women. Too old to have a child and arguably too young to have a child. (laughs) They're kind of put in these these opposing uh, places. But they're both worshiping God at what he's doing. They're both recognizing what he's doing. Now, although this is not unique to these gospel accounts, Luke and, um, Luke and Matthew, Matthew being the other one where it goes into a lot of detail of, 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 uh, of Zechariah and Elizabeth and, Jesus, and um, John and Jesus' birth, although it's not un- unique to these gospels, these two gospels particularly put a huge focus on how God used women throughout you know, this early biblical history uh, period. And it's an attribute of God that I don't want to go overlooked. It's a huge part of what God was doing then, what he's doing now, what he's always been doing. And now Mary, completely overwhelmed with what the Lord is doing, she breaks into song. Uh, I I like to think of this as like she's going on this long journey from Nazareth down to the hill country of Judah, which again, like I said, is 100 miles. It says she moved with haste, so she she ran an ultra marathon there, 100 miles down to across the country. But as she's doing that, she's turning over these scriptures in her heart. She's no she knows she knows her Old Testament, and she's turning these scriptures over with in her heart. And her song is absolutely amazing. Mary's song starts by line-by-line line quotations from the Old Testament. It starts in 1 Samuel. It goes through Habakkuk. It goes through Psalms. It goes through all these beautiful things. And she weaves together this kind of mini-sermon through, and, and she tips back to these Old Testament stories that are very similar to her current circumstance. It's really interesting. So we'll read uh, her, her song here in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. It's from 1 Samuel 2. Spirit, my, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's from Habakkuk. For he has looked on his humble servant, the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, and all generations will call me blessed. It's from Psalms. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Psalms again, kind of getting the point. And his mercy is from those who fear him, from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalt those in a humbled estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And Mary remained there with her about three months and returned to her home. So really amazing stuff throughout, but really in particular, the thing that blew me away, blew me away was the reference back to 1 Samuel. Um, it's really fascinating. So content of her song and the circumstances under which she sings this song is eerily similar to the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, if you remember that story. We're not going to read the whole thing, but remember in this story, um, so what happens in this story is that Hannah uh, and her husband, it's this guy uh, named Elkanah, who's a Levite. They're a couple that's barren. They can't have children. Sounds familiar already. What happens? Year after year, they go up to the temple to worship and to sacrifice. But one year, Hannah is so distraught that she wouldn't eat and instead came to the temple to pray. And as she's praying, the, mis- the priest mistakes her for being drunk. Do you guys remember this story? Because what happens? She's sitting there praying in her heart with her eyes closed. Her lips are moving, but no sound's coming out. And the, the, the quote is, her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So once, he, once she clears up this misunderstanding, the priest kind of confronts her. And once she clears up this misunderstanding, she tells him, oh, no, I'm just praying because I, need a, I want a child. The priest tells her, go in peace, and the God of Israel will grant your petition that you have made to him. 
So as a result of this prayer and promise, the child that's born is named Samuel, who will go on to become Israel's final judge, the kind of that transition from judges into kings. And Samuel's the guy who picks King Saul. So this is kind of a huge moment in biblical history where, where these things are shifting again. Again, it's Luke tipping, or I guess Mary in this case, tipping back to the scriptures of, we recognize there's something massive going on here with the birth of these babies. So in Luke 1, Mary visits Elizabeth. She hears the story of her, her husband, this priest guy, and her not being able to conceive. They go to the temple to pray, and there was something about not being able to hear a voice. Kind of interesting, Zechariah being mute. And then they're given the promise that their prayer would be answered, and a closed womb was opened. So cool stuff, cool parallels, but what is the significance of that? Like I mentioned, Mary and Elizabeth are both recognizing that God is doing something huge through these babies. He's currently doing something pivotal in his, as pivotal in history as when God blessed Sarah and Abraham with a child. He's doing something as pivotal in biblical history as when Hannah and Elkanah brought forth um, a judge over Israel who would pick King David. So the main point here is that these women are recognizing the fulfillment of God's promises and that God is fulfilling his promises fully. Excuse me while I take a sip. I never talk this long, so it's <laughs> like immediately dry mouth. But after uh, quoting 1 Samuel, Habakkuk, and Psalms, then Mary adds her own flair to her song here. So verse 52, this, this, this stuff actually really stood out to me and really kind of sunk into me. So verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those in humbled estate. This is Mary, Mary's song here. And if you could just like leave this on the screen here, I wanted to point out two things. What, who does this sound like? 30 years from now, who does this sound like? It sounds like Jesus, right? So in Luke 14, 11, the parable of the honor seat that we just went through, quoted from Jesus. Now, hear, hear, hear what I'm reading here, a quote from Jesus, and look at Mary's words there and see if they sound alike. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Again, Luke 18, 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from maybe two, three weeks ago. Um, Matt shared this one. Same quote. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So these are, this, this is a heritage thing from Mary and Jesus. It's really beautiful. Mary continues, verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary speaking. Again, 30 years later, Jesus says, read these words and hear Jesus' words in the Beatitudes, Luke 6. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And in Luke 6, 25, just a few verses later, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. So this is, this is, this is not meant to be like, oh, you know, Jesus, or Mary is the, is, the, is the thing that we're focusing on here, but it's meant to show us that what the people of God sound like each other, right? I mean, it's, it's really cool that they're in the same family, but, you know, I just was with my family last week for Thanksgiving, and every time I open my mouth, usually someone in my family is like, oh, you sound just like your dad, and of course I'm like, oh, like whatever, you know? <laughs> Everyone loves being compared to their parents, right? But, um, but yeah, I can hear this, like, as Jesus is giving these sermons throughout his life, I can hear his dad or whoever else being like, oh... You know, blessed are the poor, huh? You sound just like your mom kind of thing. Um, but I, I love that idea. But the point is that, you know, the like I said, the people of God sound alike. And if we have the Spirit of God working in us, it shouldn't be all that shocking that David or Mary or Jesus or people who follow Jesus sound alike. I mean, even reading Mary's song there, it sounds like it could come straight out of the Psalms. It sounds like David, you know? 
these people sound alike. And this is how Jesus Restore Albany really works, right? I mean, this is the first word in that mission statement says it all, Jesus. Jesus is the one doing it. We are Christians, many Christs. We are supposed to sound like Christ um, in the way that we do things. And God chooses the meek, you know, he chooses the humble, and this says way more about God's character than it says about ours. It's not about exalting ourselves. So from here, we're going to uh, skip over the birth of John and Zechariah's prophecy, which is kind of a, a, again, there's a lot of really cool stuff in there between, kind of all the Gospels do this, they skip back and forth between John to Jesus to John to Jesus. And even in this story, we skip from uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth to Mary and Joseph, and then back to Zechariah, and then back to Mary. Um, but for the sake of, of focusing in on Mary and Joseph, we're going to um, skip over to starting in chapter 2. Read this section here. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And the, this was the first registra- registration from uh, Quirinius, the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So again, we'll just stop there. By referencing Herod before John's birth and now referencing Caesar Augustus, before Jesus' birth. Again, it's this, this juxtaposition contrast kind of thing. Uh, Luke is again utilizing this contrast juxtaposition um, to show that these, I mean, these guys are who? They're the, they're the rulers of the earthly kingdoms. They're the guys with all the power. Caesar Augustus is the leader of an empire that stretches from Africa all the way to England, this huge area. Herod was an insanely wealthy guy who had so much influence that he became a proxy leader for Rome in this area just because he had so much influence. And, uh, you know, the one nugget I wanted to share about this was that Herod, and Matt's going to get into Herod specifically uh, in a few weeks, but something that I thought demonstrates his character, but also the contrast that Luke's going for here, um, is, a, is kind of a historical fact thing about, about Herod that I thought just was really cool. So about 15 years before Jesus and John are born, Herod builds a new palace for himself outside of this little backwoods town called Bethlehem. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, And it's not just a fortress for his own self-preservation. That was part of it. Part of it was he wanted to build this this palace so that when, if something were to go down in Jerusalem, he could retreat kind of outside, and this would be kind of the stronghold that he could retreat to. So it was something that he built for his self-preservation. But on top of that, it was not just for self-preservation and protection. It was also kind of a weird word. They call it like a pleasure palace is what they called it. So it it had all of this stuff. It had like all of the amenities of the day. It had a full Roman bathhouse in it, had a hot tub, the equivalent, had a cold tub, had heated floors. It's 2022. My house doesn't have heated floors. Um, And yeah, and it had a 650 uh, person Roman theater inside of it. This thing was absolutely massive. And he not only had this palace built, but he wanted it to be so grand and impenetrable that he first had a mountain built. You can kind of see it there. That's how it, how it looks today. He first had a mountain built on slave labor. Brought all these people in and they just built up this giant mountain so that this guy could build his palace on top of it. Uh, and it was, honestly, it's kind of a flat region. Uh, and it was, honestly, it's kind of a flat region. So it's a weird thing. It just stands out in the middle of nowhere that this guy built for himself. And then after it was completed, he named this place the Herodium. Herod did after himself. Sounds like a fun guy, right? Um, So this is what Herod was doing, just for some historical context. This is what Herod was doing just outside of Bethlehem in the time that that the story is happening to Mary and Joseph. So now let's get back to Mary and Joseph and read, uh, starting in verse 4. And Joseph went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So now they're in Bethlehem. 
because he was of the house and lineage of and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So there he is, praise God, Jesus is born. But in these circumstances, again, this contrast is meant to show us this is huge thing. These earthly kingdoms and these heavenly kingdoms are kind of stood up against each other. Um, one word I wanted to say about the inn, it's kind of a weird word. Um, in this text, the word inn is actually guest house. It's not like a hotel. It's like a room that you could rent kind of thing. So again, this is just my opinion here, kind of digging into the text and really kind of meditating on it. This is my opinion, huge caveat. Um, this is Joseph's hometown, right? So he's back in his hometown. Why is he staying in a hotel or a guest house in the first place? Does he not have some family or some, you know, something close by? Um, and also this word for inn, like I said, is guest room. So normally three or four or five or eight families would pack into these rooms as you know, shelter. So it's not like you go to the front desk for check-in and all the keys are gone from the board. It's not like that kind of there is no room. So again, this is my opinion, but in a culture where hospitality is huge, highly valued, do you really think just based on there not being enough room, they're going to put the pregnant woman down with the animals? No, it's like scoot over or somebody else go sleep with the animals. So again, this is my, my sense here. This comes, I think their story comes with a tremendous amount of shame. I think the, the circumstances around Mary's pregnancy are sort of suspect to everyone, her family, whoever else. And so there's cultural shame. It's not earned shame, of course, because this is a miracle of God, but it's cultural shame around this thing that kind of pushes them to the margins, pushes them kind of outside of society, not in the main guest room, but downstairs with the animals uh, kind of thing. But man-made shame aside, God's purposes are still fulfilled, and Jesus is born. Emmanuel, here he is, God with us. He's unwelcomed amongst the upstairs guests, and instead he's cast to the lower room where the animals are, and there's soiled hay, and he's laying in a feeding trough. Mangers, like we kind of lose the significance of that word. Feeding troughs. Disgusting, right? It's a place where animals eat. If you go to, like, keep sheep or whatever, like, look at where they eat. You want to lay your baby in that? No. Um... But think of the contrast. Like, and I think what that's meant to stir in us, too, is you know, he's, he's born almost literally in the shadow of a man-made mountain made by slave labor for an earthly king. This is what earthly kingdoms are. This is the juxtaposition that Luke presents to us. And I think the contract is, contrast is meant to stir us to ask of ourselves, do we have a narrative built on self-preservation? Do we have a narrative built on self-exaltation? Or do we have a narrative built on self-sacrifice? Where does our story start? Do we put ourselves in a palace on top of a man-made mountain? Or does our story start in the dirt with Jesus? God's kingdom was always built on a narrative of humility and self-sacrifice. I mean, have you ever noticed throughout the Old Testament how many times God uses the handsome, self-capable, firstborn person to accomplish his purposes? I mean, almost, almost never, rarely, right? He's always choosing the youngest or the lastborn. You know, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Joshua and his brothers, and then even the story of David. Um, again, our boy Samuel, born miraculously to Hannah almost a thousand years before, um, he's been tasked by God to go find the next king for Israel as Saul's going through his, through his uh, rebellious phase, to call it that. Uh, he goes to Jesse's house, household to pick a king from amongst Jesse's sons. This is what God kind of prompts him to do that. And then here he is in, uh, let's see here, 1 Samuel 16, um, uh, Jesse's rolling out all of his sons. Samuel's looking, and it says, When they came, 
He looked upon Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed before him. So to steal Matt's word from a couple of weeks before, Eliab was a beefcake. You know, he was, <laughs> he was this guy that he just looked at him. He's like, this is obviously a king. This is a guy, you know. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. So this has always been God's posture. This is not inconsistent from way, way Old Testament to Jesus' time to today. God's posture is always this way. He almost always picks the incapable to demonstrate his glory, not ours. So what does Emmanuel mean to us today? That was kind of the, the setup for this whole sermon series. What does God with us mean today? God with us, if we believe his word, we, it means that we know that through him all things were created and all things hold together from Colossians. That means every muscle fiber in us that allows us to breathe is being held together, sustained by Christ. It's not just this sunny message that you hear on Christian radio or whatever. It's like, oh, I had a bad day, and then I prayed, and it was all good. No, like God is sustaining us. He's holding us together. Um, not just when we need him and not just when we need an uplifting message. He's with us and not in the physically attractive man-made, man-made ways that we think. Emmanuel is with us in the stinky animal pit. He's born in the shadow of human greatness and yet greater than anything we can perceive. And then Jesus would retain this posture through his entire life. He would take on the form of a servant, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for your sins and for mine. And our response is simple and also incredibly difficult at the same time. We're to take that same posture. You know, that's the difficult thing. I mean, it's the easiest thing. You're, it's, we're reliant on Christ, fully reliant on Christ. That's easy. The difficult part is to humble yourself to take on that gift. Um, you know, we should be throwing ourselves at the grace of God by recognizing that Christ's sacrifice was and is for us, and it's sufficient. We don't do it by ourselves, and we can't earn it by ourselves. So how do we expect God to move today? Are we expecting something as big and obvious as Rome itself to fix the evil in the world through diplomacy or through war? Are we simply just waiting on someone else more capable than us to take it on? Or do we believe that God is, has placed each of us here in Albany, Oregon, in the dirty and broken places that each of us is uniquely called and placed, empowered by a God who's already in those places before we even ask him to join us there? Our God is in the trenches. He's in the delivery room with you nurses. He's in the classroom with you teachers. And he's at the downtown twice around with you and your neighbors. We are agents of his restoration, not because we can do it ourselves, but because only through him can we do it at all.